time next week, this will be our third service rather than our second service as we're adding a Saturday night at 6.30, as you've heard. Another point of good news, we found out about that, we're going to be able to carry the Saturday night service uh, live around the country on a Calvary satellite network so that people in different states will be able to tune in live and hear that uh, service should they so desire. Let's now turn in our Bibles to one of our best friends, the book of Psalms. It's one of our best friends because we retreat to it whenever we need courage, strength, or encouragement. It's been that way with people throughout many generations. The book of Psalms has been a favorite retreat spot. And I am doing a series on Psalms, not all of them, by the way. There's 150 of them, as you know. But some select Psalms. Some uh, of you will have favorite Psalms mentioned. Some of your favorite Psalms may not be mentioned. Please don't take offense to that. If we were to get everybody's favorite Psalms, we'd go through all 150. So we're going to go through some select Psalms in the next several weeks. It is poetry. It's Hebrew poetry. It doesn't rhyme, but the thoughts may rhyme or contrast. And because it is poetic, it's one of those books that we read not only with our minds, but we read it with our hearts. It touches our emotion as well as touching our intellect. At times you'll see the psalmist explode with excitement. And then a couple verses later, he's down in the dumps, depressed, doubting. And that's why we like it so much. We read him and we go, I like this guy. He lives where I live in real life. He's up and sometimes he's down. I don't want you to think, however, that this is just some sentimental book for the weak and the faint-hearted. In fact, many of these psalms were written by history's, or one of history's greatest warriors, King David himself, who wrote some of these expressions in the heat of battle itself. So now let's turn to Psalm 1, and we begin in these six verses, setting the stage. And the reason it's such a great psalm is that the psalmist speaks about what all of us want the most. Happiness. I don't know anyone who doesn't want happiness. I never find someone who goes, you know, I really want out of life is to be unhappy. That's my goal. We all want happiness. And this speaks about that. In fact, look at the first word, blessed. Oh, how happy. Many translations put it. Blessed or oh, how happy is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord. And in his law he meditates day and night. He shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth its fruit in its season, whose leaf also shall not wither. Whatever he does shall prosper. The ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff which the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, and the way of the ungodly shall perish. Blessed, a word that means, oh, how happy, oh, to be envied, oh, to be congratulated. And in the Hebrew, it's it's in a plural sense. It could be even translated, oh, the happinesses of the multiplied blessings of this person. 
According to one source that I read called the American Holistic Health Federation, they said people who are not satisfied with their lives increase their chances of premature death by 10%. Those who are unsatisfied and unhappy. What's interesting is that Solomon said the very same thing 3,000 years ago. He said in Proverbs 17, A cheerful heart is good medicine, but a crushed spirit dries up the bones. Are you happy? And if so, what makes you happy? That's what this psalm is all about. What is sad to me is that for too long, Christians have been associated with anything but happiness. For a long time, it was thought, if you're really holy, you wear all black and you never smile. You're always kind of bummed out. And when you speak to people, it's in this sanctuary tone. (laughs) Oliver Wendell Holmes said, I would have entered the ministry if clergymen I knew didn't look and act so much like undertakers. (laughs) Then Robert Louis Stevenson once wrote in his diary as if it was an incredible thing. He came home and wrote, I went to church today and I'm not depressed. (laughs) Who wrote those rules? Who said that to be sanctified means to be sad? To be holy means to be unhappy? That's ridiculous. In fact, one of the great theologians, Helmut Thielicke in times past, wrote this, Should we not see that lines of laughter about the eyes are just as much marks of faith as our lines of care and seriousness? Is it only earnestness that is baptized? Is laughter pagan? We have allowed too much that is good to be lost to the church, and we have cast many pearls before swine. A church is in a bad way when it banishes laughter from the sanctuary and leaves it to the cabaret, the nightclub, and the toastmasters. Now, every person that I've ever met has some idea, picture, of what happiness is. If I only owned fill-in-the-blank. If my income was only fill-in-the-blank. You'd say, I'd love to fill in that blank. (laughs) If I only was married to, or if I only wasn't married to... (laughs) Well, God has a lot to say about true happiness. And one thing we discover from this psalm is that a happy person is a holy person. Holiness brings happiness. It's a description of a righteous man. A godly person has a grip on what it means to truly be happy or blessed. Well, we're going to go through these six verses today, and I've outlined it into four sections. This is a description of a blessed or a happy man, and I use that term man generically. I hope nobody's offended in this politically correct culture. It's the word of the psalm itself. It speaks about a person generically, a happy person, man or woman. We see that he is described, first of all, by what he declines, what he says no to. Secondly, by what he delights in. What he says yes to. Thirdly, by what he depicts, a tree. And fourthly, by what he differs from, the ungodly man. Notice verse 1 then, what he declines. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of the sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. Notice that the description begins with all negatives. There's nothing positive said yet about what he does. It's what he doesn't do. In other words... 
If you really want to be happy in life, don't do this. I know that sort of flies in the face of modern thought. The modern pundit would say, you shouldn't talk about negatives. You should always start out with a positive. But I found there's a lot of power even in negative thinking. The righteous, thus the happy person, is known by who he does not hang out with, what he does not listen to, where he does not rest. How can you know what is good unless you also have a firm grip on what is wrong, what is bad? A uh, copywriter was applying for a job at a local newspaper. The editor asked him a simple question. Can you condense a lot of material into short statements? He said, sure, no problem. So tongue-in-cheek, the editor handed the applicant a copy of the Ten Commandments. He said, I want you to review this material and shorten it up for me. The man did it and got the job. He took the Ten Commandments, turned it back into the editor with one word that summed it up. Don't. Don't. Now, that's really not exactly accurate. The commandments don't have all negatives. There are some positive aspects even to the Ten Commandments. The point is this. There is a lot of punch and power in negatives. When you know what not to do, you can avoid trouble. An athlete is a good athlete, not just because he knows what to do, but he knows what to stay away from, what foods to abstain from, what activities to abstain from. So a happy person knows what it means to say no. And he knows that when he says no to certain things, it's the first step toward victory, when at the end of the race he can go, yes, because he has won. What does he decline? Verse 1, wrong advice, first of all. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly. Be very careful and selective who you listen to. Who gives you advice? Who you look up to? Who your role model is? Whom you would emulate? Didn't Jesus say that? He said, take heed what you hear. And another occasion he said, be very careful how you listen. Be careful what you listen to and be careful how you listen. So many Americans place Movie stars, rock stars, athletes, at, they're sort of like the heroes. Oh, that's my hero. The problem is, is that when many of them blow it, we think, well, if they did it, maybe I can do it. Or we overlook it if it's a famous person. A psychologist by the name of Carol Moog was commenting on the fact that Americans tend to do this even when there were heroes who have done bad things. And she wrote at a time when Tanya Harding and O.J. Simpson and uh, Mike Tyson were heroes and role models for kids. And she said, Americans have elevated celebrity and fame to such a ridiculous status that they can't accept it when a hero commits a crime. Be careful who you listen to. Be careful who you look up to. Be careful who you take advice from. Let me give you two quick ways to spiritual disaster. Not that you're dying to know that. Quick, get my pen. Two quick ways. I've got to learn this. But I'll tell you anyway. Two quick ways to spiritual disaster. Number one, take advice from no one. Number two, take advice from everyone. There are some people that just won't take any advice. No, 
Don't tell me. Let me work it out on my own. I know Christians who are like the Lone Ranger Christian. I'll just work it out, me and God. Forget the body of Christ and how he had this set up. And that's dangerous. Like the guy who went to the golf pro for lessons. The golf pro said, let me see your swing. So the guy's out there swinging a few times. And after several swings, the golf pro starts commenting on the problems that he sees and how to correct the swing, the slice. But every time the golf pro started giving him advice, the guy would interrupt him, telling him his own personal version of what he thought was wrong and how he thought he should correct it. Well, after being interrupted three, four, five times, the golf pro just folded his arms and agreed with the guy. Yeah, wow, you're right. That's exactly right. Wow, awesome. The end of the lesson, the man paid the golf pro his money, shook his hand and said, you are such an insightful, wonderful golf pro. You've given me great tips. I said, great, thanks. Pocketed the money, walked away. An observer was watching this, went up to the golf pro and said, why did you do that? Why did you let this guy get away with it? He said, well, son, I've learned a long time ago that it's a waste of time to sell answers to a man who only wants to buy echoes. There's a lot of people who want echoes. I've come to you for counseling. Okay, this is what the Bible says. I don't want to hear that. I want you to tell me my life's okay, that I can live any way I want to, and I want you to pat me on the back. But the other way to spiritual disaster is to take everybody's advice. Everybody has an opinion of how you ought to live. And it's been said, if you try to build with everybody's opinion, you'll have a crooked house. You'll have a crooked life if you listen to everybody's advice. Much of it may be well-intentioned advice. It might be given by friends or relatives who are very close to you. But if those people are not seeking first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, it can throw you off track. So we have to be careful who we listen to. Advice is sort of like medicine, you know. You have to have the right kind of medicine. Not, I'm sick. Oh, good, medicine. I'll just take it. You get sicker. It has to be the right kind of medicine. And you have to have the right amount. Too much and you'll OD. So be selective in your advice taking. Then we see also that he declines wrong associations. For the next phrase says, nor does he stand in the path of sinners. One translation translates it loiter. He doesn't loiter, linger with sinners. Notice there's a slowing process. He starts walking, and now he's just loitering. He's standing around. There's no real movement. What's the point? If you walk in the footsteps of bad advice, you will soon stand with those who give it. Don't walk or stand in the path of sinners. I remember my dad used to tell me very often, whoever you associate yourself with, whoever you expose yourself to, you're going to start being like them. If they're worse than you are, you'll be drugged down. If they're better than you are, you'll be taken to a higher level. Sort of interesting how that friends or couples, the longer they're together, they start saying the same things, acting very, very similar, and unfortunately, in many cases, looking very similar to each other. Have you noticed that? I don't know how that works. They're married from two different gene pools, but they look alike after a period of... I don't get it. Now, this doesn't mean that it's wrong to have friends who are unbelievers. In fact, I think a mistake many Christians make is they come to Christ and then they isolate themselves from every unbelieving friend or contact. 
All they do is bring Christians around. I'm not saying that's bad, but if you cut the nerve of every unbelieving contact and friend, you will forget what it's like to be an unbeliever. You'll lose the pulse, the beat, the ache in the heart. Even Jesus was called the friend of sinners and publicans. He ate with them and was criticized for it. But he didn't do it to be drugged to their level, but to lift others to a higher level. Third thing that this person declines is wrong actions. Notice the next phrase, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. This is a popular place to be today. It's popular to be scornful to be a mocker of God, to be a mocker of God's people. It is chic and in and correct to look at Christians and say, oh, idiots. After all, no intelligent people really believe the Bible literally. I think that if you listen with discernment to talk shows and news reports, you're discovering the fact that you and I are emerging as the enemy in this country. We are what's wrong with progress. It's these fascist, Nazi, hateful Christians. We hate them. They're the problem. Mocking and scorning those who would walk in a godly manner. Notice now the slowing of progress once again. Walk, stand, sit. Notice the other triplet. Counsel, path, seat. And the third one, ungodly, sinners, scornful. There's a slowing down, and with each movement of slowing down comes an increase of wickedness to the point of mocking. You know, I've discovered that Satan has two basic strategies for people on earth. Number one, keep them away from Jesus Christ. If they're unbelievers, give them a cork, a plug for the dike, make them happy, temporarily satisfy them. Do anything to keep them away from making a full-on commitment to Jesus. If that doesn't work, if they defect and go into the enemy, God's camp, second strategy will be employed, and that is keep them stagnant. Keep them not growing. Get them to be listening to the wrong group of people to the point where they'll slow down and stand among sinners and eventually even mock Christians. It's his strategy. Well, the happy person, the godly person, is known by what he declines. Secondly, he's known by what he delights in. Look at verse 2. But, in contrast, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. This is what he doesn't do, but this is what he does do. In other words, a happy, godly, righteous person isn't known just by the don'ts, but by the do's, what he delights in. Jesus said, wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be also. It's been said that you may have enough religion to make you decent, but not enough to make you dynamic. You may be the kind of person who says, well, I don't sit in the seat of the scornful. I don't stand in the way of sinners. I'm a very separated person. Cool. What do you do? Do you delight in the law of God? Do you love your Bible? Is it a treasure to you that you delight in the word of God on a daily basis? The best defense then is a good offense, isn't it? When Billy Sunday was young, Billy Sunday was a great evangelist one time in this country in the late 1800s, early 1900s. 
when he first came to faith in Jesus Christ, an older believer sort of took him under his wing and said, William, there are three things that I wish you would do every day of your life. If you do these three things, no one will ever be able to write the word backslider after your name. Number one, every day take 15 minutes, open your Bible and let God speak to you. Number two, take 15 minutes afterwards and talk to God based what you read. Number three, tell others for 15 minutes in your day about the Savior. Tell others about Jesus Christ. Well, Billy Sunday followed his advice and emerged as a great, great evangelist that touched thousands of people for Christ in the United States. So the happy person is one who stays in the Word, or as it says here, delights in the law. You know what's interesting about that? When this was written, what was he speaking about? The first five books of Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's what he had to delight in and meditate on. We've got 66 books. We have got such a treasure house. How much more then should this be said of us with so much more? Okay, what's his attitude toward the word? It says what? He delights in it. It's his delight. doesn't say his drudgery is in the law of God. His duty is to read a chapter a day, to feel spiritual. It's his delight. He loves it. You don't have to force him. He didn't have to have a little timer go off on his watch. Oh, yeah, the Bible. He delights in it. Psalm 19 says, The statutes of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. More to be desired are they than gold, yea, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. One translation puts it this way. His great pleasure is in the law of God. And in his law, he meditates day and night. Why is he so stoked, so excited about the Bible? Because every time he or she reads this book, they encounter God in its pages. That's why. It's like, I want to read it because God speaks to me in it. I want to know what he has to say to me. Sometimes Christians are accused, especially those who teach the Bible, are accused of being bibliolaters. I've heard that term. You worship the Bible. Like it's the Father, Son, Holy Spirit in the Bible. You've elevated the book above everything else. Now, we don't worship the Bible. We love the author of the Bible. And God said, I've esteemed my word above my name. And if God loves it that much, I think we should too. We love its author. You know, it's like a young man who's in love with a young girl and he carries her picture everywhere he goes. He's got it in the wallet. And whenever they're apart... He can't see her face to face. He pulls out the picture. And he looks at it. And he gets pretty happy just to see her face. Now, the picture is a poor substitute for her. But it speaks to him of her. And perhaps even when nobody's around, nobody's looking, he'll give it a little surreptitious kiss on the picture. He'll kiss an actual enameled piece of paper. You think, that's disgusting. No, That's the closest thing he's got. And when I read the Bible, it speaks to me of the one I love. That's why I love reading it so much. It's such a delight. I encounter my Lord in it. What does he do? It says he meditates day and night. A happy person meditates. When the Bible says meditate, 
When you hear that term, in this era, and in this state, you might think, oh, great, transcendental meditation. Now, when the Bible speaks about meditation, it's not speaking about where you disengage your mind (laughs) and empty all of your thoughts and say, um... Meditation in the Bible is where you deliberately engage your conscious thoughts and mind and think over words and phrases God's truth. That's what it means. The word means to ponder or imagine. It could also be translated to mutter, to moan, to roar. That doesn't mean you should act like a geek when you read it. But the idea is, in fact, the root word speaks of an animal moaning as he would chew the cud. A cow would eat grass, swallow it, bring it up again, swallow it, bring it up again, and go, mmm, every time he did it. (laughs) And the root for meditate comes from that idea. Here's the idea. We read the word slowly enough, like spiritually chewing the cud, to let the Holy Spirit speak to us as we do it. It's the difference between reading the Bible and feeding on the Bible. It's not, whom I've been speed reading through ten chapters. Good, now I can have fun. It's where you slow down and you take the truth of a word, of a phrase, of how they connect together and you notice certain things. And each time you do, more truth is given to your heart. You've got to slow down to do that. One of my biggest problems in life has been that I eat fast. Now, keep in mind, I'm the youngest of four boys. This would explain why. Growing up in my home, it was survival of the fastest. Food would come on the table, get it before anybody else gets it. Now, that has severe consequences, as I have become an adult, sort of. Um, If I go out and eat at a fancy restaurant, my wife has to remind me, slow down. This meal is costing, you know, it's like $4 a snort. So just slow down, pace yourself, enjoy it, savor the bite. Meditation is the link between theory and action. It's the link between theory and action. Your mind works like a railroad track. You lay down thoughts, you lay down grooves that we travel in. And just as what we believe determines how we behave... If we start reading, right and meditating, it molds a biblical mindset. You're laying down grooves so that when you face a situation, a person, a problem, you can get into that groove and approach it with biblical thoughts because you've laid the groundwork already. George Mueller, who started the Bristol Orphanage years ago, in his autobiography once wrote, It has pleased the Lord to teach me a truth, the benefit of which I have not lost for over 14 years. The point is this. I saw more clearly than ever that the first great primary business to which I ought to attend every day was to have my soul happy in the Lord. The first thing to be concerned about was not how I might serve the Lord or how I might glorify the Lord, but how I might get my soul into a happy state that my inner man might be nourished. I saw that the most important thing I had to do was to give myself to the reading of the Word of God, not the simple reading of the Word of God, so that it passes only through my mind as water through a pipe, 
But considering what I read, pondering over it, applying it to my heart, to meditate on it, that thus my heart might be comforted, encouraged, warned, reproved, instructed, and that thus, by means of the word of God, while meditating on it, my heart be brought into experimental communion with the Lord. In other words, I read a text, and then I look at it, and I say, are there any warnings here for me? Is there any sin that I must avoid? Is there a blessing that this text speaks about that I can enjoy? Is there a promise here that I need to claim today, now? That's meditation. When do we do that? Well, when did the psalmist do it? In your law, I meditate once a week. In his law, I meditate twice a year, Christmas and Easter. In his law, I meditate day and night. How often do you eat? Once a week? Twice a year? Like the man who came to one of Dwight L. Moody's evangelistic meetings years ago, and he stood up at the end and he said, I hope that I get enough spiritual food here to last a year. Do you eat to last a year? Do you go out and have one big meal and go, Oh, great, don't have to eat till next year. No, you eat daily. I bet you eat more than once a day. That's why David said, I meditate day and night, in the mornings and the evenings. Thirdly, let's notice what this person depicts. He shall be like a, what? A tree. Now that's important. A tree is a word picture for us. A person, a happy, a satisfied person who denies certain things and delights in the word of God will be like a tree, not a tree stump. Not a two-by-four, but something growing, living, active. There's growth going on. A happy person is a growing person spiritually. So it speaks of growth. It also speaks of permanence. Notice, he'll be like a tree planted, not potted. His roots are deep into soil. He's not a person who comes to Christ, makes his commitment, falls away, makes a recommitment, falls away, commits again, falls away. Not that you can't come back. That's not my point. But this type of a person has got roots. He's there. It's permanent. Didn't Jesus say something about that? Whoever abides in me, which means to remain constantly in me, will bear forth fruit. What if you went out and bought a tree to landscape your yard? And you stuck it in the front yard. And after a week or two, you looked at it and you go, doesn't look right in the front yard. I'm going to move it to the backyard. So you've had it in there a week or two and the roots are just starting to feel their way through the soil and you uproot it again and you plant it in the backyard. You water it a couple weeks, a month, and you go, I just can't get used to it in the backyard. It looks goofy there too. I'll move it to the side yard so I don't even have to look at it. You keep doing that to that poor tree. You're going to have to call the plant paramedics pretty soon. You're stressing it. It needs to stay there. It needs to let the roots go down deeply into soil. David prayed this, Created me a pure heart, O Lord, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. And so this type of a person is a permanent person. He depicts a tree planted as roots. This also speaks of refreshment. Because a spiritual, a happy, a satisfied, a righteous person will be one who is not just growing unto himself, but he'll be a blessing to others. 
Notice what the psalmist says. He brings forth fruit in a season. Why do people plant trees to begin with? So that they would grow to the extent that they produce leaves and fruit so that others could be delighted by them. Not only then does he delight in the word for himself, but he becomes a blessing to delight other people. Remember God said to Abraham, Abraham, I will bless you, I will make your name great, and I will make you a blessing. I'll make you a blessing. That's what God wants to do with your life. He wants you to grow. He wants you to be able to say no, 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 so that you can say yes, yes, yes to the right things, so that you'll grow and be permanent in soil, and your life will be able to be a constant refreshment to other people. If it's not, then you're short of what God has for you. This last week in Israel, on the same day, I stood on the shores of two inland bodies of water, the only bodies of water that are in the country of Israel, the Dead Sea and the Sea of Galilee, both below sea level, Dead Sea, 1,290 feet below sea level. Sea of Galilee, some 720 feet below sea level. But what a difference. The Dead Sea is rocky, barren, dead, filled with salt. Nothing lives in it or by it. Sea of Galilee, teeming with life inside, farms all around, receiving nourishment from the water. The observer would say, what's the difference between the Sea of Galilee and the Dead Sea? They're both connected by the same river, They're both in the same area. They're both below sea level. Well, the Sea of Galilee has an inlet and an outlet. Takes water in from the north, brings it down to the south. The Dead Sea brings water in, but there's no outlet. Because it's only taking in and not giving out, it is dead. And people who only take in, but don't grow to the extent of giving out, find themselves dying. Losing spiritual vibrance, life. Then this also speaks of resilience. Notice, his leaf shall not wither. It could speak of the evergreen. That's what some scholars believe. The evergreens that are so prevalent, the cypress trees in that area of the world. The point is this, that the storms of life, the seasons of hot and cold, the troubles of life, don't ruin this person. The person may fall down, but he gets back up. He's resilient. In the Garden of Gethsemane, every time I've been there, I've seen a couple of old olive trees. They've been there a long time, and when I was there, first of all, in my 20s, I looked at them, big, gnarly trunks. When I went back the next year, they were there. When I went back this time, they were still there. And I hear they've been there for about 1,900 years. So you can always count when you go and look at those trees, They're going to be there. Isn't it great to know people who are so rooted in Christ that when you go back and see them again, they're still there. They're still rooted. They're still resilient. Troubles have come their way. Storms have beat up on them. They're still there. They're resilient. And then finally, this speaks of maturity. The psalmist says, whatever he does will prosper. Whatever he does will prosper. The Hebrew word salach means to push forward. It speaks of a person maturing, reaching his God-given goal. Reaching his God-given goal. He'll be fruitful. He'll be growing through his life to the very end. So here we have then a general picture of a happy, blessed, godly, righteous person, man or woman, 
spirit-filled, spirit-directed, in fellowship with God, bearing forth fruit, blessing others, and he's that way to the very end of life. Little boy went into a pet store with his dad because his dad said he's been so good he could pick any puppy for a pet. Walked into the pet store and his dad ran his finger across all the cages and he said, Okay, son, of all these dogs that you see, which one do you want to pick? And what caught the little boy's attention was the little puppy who was wagging his tail ferociously. He said, Daddy, I want the one with the happy ending. (laughs) Don't we all? Don't we love stories with happy endings? Wouldn't you like your life to have a happy ending? You've made a commitment to Christ when you're young. Don't you want to end well? Prosper, push forward, come to your goal and maturity? It comes by this process. And then finally, this happy person is known by what he differs from. What he differs from, the ungodly. Verse 4, the ungodly are not so. In one of the translations, closer to the original, it's a double negative. It would be translated this, not so, not so, the ungodly. In other words, whatever marks the godly person doesn't mark the ungodly. Whatever I said about the blessings and the greatness of the godly person, I cannot say about the ungodly. Not so. It doesn't apply to him. It doesn't work. In fact, look at the first word in the psalm. It's the word what? Blessed. What's the last word? Perish. See the contrast? These are the two results of two different lifestyles. One is blessed, happy, satisfied. One will perish. Notice the description, verse 4. He's like the chaff that the wind drives away. Chaff was the useless part of the grain at the winnowing time when the fork would be thrown in the air and the, the grain would be thrown up and the winds would prevail. The husk or the chaff would be rubbed off and be blown away by the wind because it was useless and the heavier grain would fall to the ground. Now that's a, a, a picture of the unrighteous, the ungodly. He won't stand with the congregation in the end of righteous, but he's like the chaff that the wind blows away. See the contrast? A blessed person is what? A tree planted, rooted. An ungodly person is like the chaff that the wind drives away. Unsaved people, unbelievers, are driven by forces that they have no control over. Even though, even though, many unbelievers that I know will say, I'm the captain of my own ship. I'm the master of my own destiny. I make my own choices. In fact, I don't even believe in the devil or believe in evil forces. Well, that's what's so ironic about it. The very forces you deny are the ones driving you. The very forces that you say you don't believe in because they don't exist, because you can't apprehend them with your senses, are the very forces that are moving your life. You're being duped. This is how Paul put it in Ephesians 2. And you, as a Christian, he has made alive, who were dead in trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the one who now works in the sons of disobedience. Like a weather vane. When the wind blew that way, that's the way you went. wind blew that way, that's the way you went. You are relentlessly driven as powerless against the forces 
as chaff against the wind. You might say, well, listen, let me just tell you something right now. I'm not a Christian, and I'm happy, all right? I'm happy. For how long? This is the closest you'll get to heaven. Christian, this is the closest you'll get to eternal punishment. That's why it says in the end, the ungodly are not so, but are like the chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the ungodly shall not stand in the judgment. In other words, they'll fall, not be able to stand through it. Nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous, for the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the ungodly shall perish. Does the word blessed describe you? Does holiness, godliness make you happy? Are you satisfied? Are you growing? Have you stopped? Have you leveled off? I read a story, and I'll close with this, about a young girl named Stephanie uh, back in 1975 who died by what was at first diagnosed as a perforated gastric ulcer. The lining of the stomach became agitated, and that ulcer burst. She died. As doctors looked into her case, however, and those that monitored her case, including the psychiatrist, said that she died with a psychosomatic disorder they called an unwillingness to grow up. Unwillingness to grow up. They said she kept living in a world of make-believe and she would draw cartoons of people because they were nicer and gentler than people in real life. And she had a morbid fear of growing old because then she couldn't run and play with dolls and fly kites. And the doctors in the medical report said because of this unhealthy refusal to leave childhood, she was overactive while continually being undernourished, which led her to get the ulcer and die. Let me apply that to us. For us to grow up, we need to be well nourished spiritually. And the more nourished we are in the Word of God, the more we will be able to grow, the more we will be able to influence others and bless others and delight others, the greater fruit we'll have. Don't be so active that you forget to be nourished. And though there's lots of voices, lots of advice, learn when to tune in and when to plug your ears and run the other way. If you do that, you'll be happy. You'll be blessed. Father, we thank you this morning for the message of Psalm 1 the happy person. And Lord, I pray that our delight, our pleasure would be in you and in your word because it speaks of you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Amen.